This is Jarvis Leatherby of the band Night Demon, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another week of Focus on Metal. Nope, we don't have anyone from Night Demon on the show this week, but I, uh, I played that intro just to remind myself to uh, let everybody know, if you don't already know, that the uh, guys in Night Demon have started to put out their weekly podcast, their Night Demon Heavy Metal podcast, and they are up to a week number 10 as of, uh, I think, two weeks ago. So uh, all kinds of good stuff as they delve into Night Demon land, and you can also... Uh, you know, go up to nightdemon.net slash podcast. Or if you want to keep it real simple, just go up to nightdemon.net and there's a little podcast menu to click on. You can head over there and check out all 10 weeks of the Night Demon Heavy Metal podcast. And, uh, you know, possibly going to just nightdemon.net. We'll let you go over to the shop and all that good stuff, too. And obviously, with all the shit show that's happening right now, Jarvis and the boys aren't touring but uh, once we get clear from that, that's also a good stop for you to go by and check out the always ever touring road dogs that are Night Demon. And I should also mention that uh, there's also special bonus subscriber content that's available for each show as well. I think that's a pretty cool concept. Uh, I don't know. We get so much audio. I don't know if it's uh, worth our trouble or not. Uh, anyways. Uh, just thinking out loud. But anyways, you can also go up to nightdemon.net slash subscriber, and there's all kinds of great content that's up there, whether it's videos that they've never put out before. Uh, you can get these different uh, rare LPs, just all kinds of good stuff that they are offering as bonus subscriber stuff. So well worth it. And hey, you know, any podcast that gets its intro trailer narrated by the one and only John Bush, you know it's got to be good. What's up, everybody? This is John Bush from Armored Saint, and the focus is on metal, so turn it up. So what we do have on the show this week is a long chat that Richie had with author Steve Pilkington. Steve's latest book that's been out in the UK for a little bit. And as part of the On Track series, uh, it will be released here in the States on October 28th. And after the chat, if you have the burning desire to pre-order this puppy, then uh, the book is called Iron Maiden, Every Album, Every Song. Steve's also been the author of several other books that are uh, within our genre, including one on Deep Purple and Rainbow that Richie talks to him a little bit about. He's also done a Black Sabbath song by song one. And he's done books on the Stones and, uh, hey, even Monty Python. Not that anyone's ever called Python metal. I will say that if you really think about their attitude and that kind of screw everybody, that, yeah, yeah, Python definitely has the metal attitude. But, yeah, I agree. Not a metal band. So, of course, with, uh, you know, Steve having written about Deep Purple, one of Richie's favorite bands, he did take the opportunity to delve into a little bit of Deep Purple and Rainbow discussion as well with Steve and even through back to the episode a few weeks ago where we paid tribute to uh, producer Martin Birch and tossed out some of that stuff and discussed with Steve as well. So lots of good talk of Maiden and Purple and Rainbow and good stuff this week as Richie sits down and chats with author Steve Pilkington. Hello. Is that Steve Pilkington? Certainly is. Hi, Steve. It's Richie here for the interview. How are you doing? Hi, mate. Yeah, not so good, not so bad, not so bad. Yeah, so where in the UK are you based? I'm in the northwest, uh, just uh, just near Wigan. Okay, Wigan. Of, uh, Liverpool way. Okay, okay. How are, where are Wigan now in in, uh, in the football? What division are they in? Oh, they've, they've dropped like a stone. They've, uh, they've gone down two or three divisions uh, at about time a bit lately. Okay, okay. Even had financial problems and got, got points as well, so it's uh, it's not been good. Yeah, that never helps. Um, I'm I'm just outside of Boston in the U.S., but I'm originally from Ireland. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, I can hear that in your voice, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So have you done much press for the book so far? 
Um, yeah, I did a, a, another radio interview just last week, actually. It's uh, very, uh, very interesting, so I'm looking forward to this as well. Yeah, I want to. I want to ask about. We'll, we'll get into the Maiden book in, in a in a minute, but you, you did a book on Deep Purple and Rainbow as well, um, and every album, every song on track. Uh, what do you think of the new Deep Purple record? To be honest, I haven't heard it yet. Okay, I haven't heard it yet. <laughs> um, it's not by um, design, not by not wanting to hear it. It's just that, um, and I, I have I um, basically. I write for um, a, a website that I'm co-administrator of called Velvet Thunder, and I do so much uh, reviewing for that that I tend to uh, be listening to stuff that I have to for review all the time, and also with like books that I'm doing like this one. And my time of like listening for pleasure just gets severely rationed, <laughs> and I keep meaning to have a listen to that new purple one, and I've not managed to do it yet. Yeah, I've heard really good things about it. Um, what do you take of the Steve Morris era in general? Now, I haven't got the 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 other book he did on Deep Purple, so I don't know how you feel about that. Are you a fan of the Steve Morris era? Well, it, it goes to where I am, and I'm not really because um, I love Steve and the the, um, the, you know, the I love his guitar playing, and I think the albums have been almost all of them have been really good. Uh, Rocks of the Deep was a bit uh, weak and Bananas was a bit weak, but generally they've been very good. But I, I can never shake the feeling that there's something just missing in Blackmore's sound. Mm. Like I even went back recently to uh, The Battle Rages On, which was the, the last album Blackmore did with him, and it's, it's an album that gets a, a lot of criticism. And there is some weak stuff on it, but I listened to it and I just thought, you know, there's something there that just left when Blackmore went. And, yeah. you know, I don't know, I don't know what it is. So I like the Morse era, but I can't embrace it in quite the same way as the Blackmore stuff. Well, you're, you're not as finite about it as a lot of Deep Purple fans are, because to a lot of them, it's no Blackmore, no Purple. No, I'll never say that because I mean, for a start, I love the uh, Tommy Boland era. I, I love the uh, I love Come Taste the Band. In fact, that was the first time I ever saw Purple was with Tommy Boland. Wow. Uh, so you know, I I really I I love that era. Yeah. In fact, the first gig I ever went to was uh, when I was fourteen. Was the um, the last gig that Purple did with Tommy Boland in Liverpool? Wow. It's interesting you bring up that record because um, me and my co-host Scott, we did a discussion episode a few weeks ago and of course Martin Birch passed away about just over a month ago. Yeah. And we both picked our top five albums that Martin Birch produced. And, and I think I shocked my co-host when I said that I think number two for me was Come Taste the Band. I just think that album is amazing. And I I think in Deep Purple's catalogue, it does tend to get overlooked. Oh, it does without a doubt. Without a doubt. Uh, I mean, when when I did the um, the, the, um, Deep Purple book, I mean, what I did was, uh, a few people sort of have have wondered why I did this, but the way I approached it was, I wanted to look at the, I I didn't want to take the whole of the Purple sort of um, uh, catalogue because I kind of feel that if I did that, interest for a lot of readers would drop off as I got towards all the later albums. Mm-hmm. A lot of people wouldn't want, wouldn't want to read about all the Morsi albums and that. Um, plus, the fact there was more interesting stuff going on in the early days. So what I did was I defined parameters on it from 1968 to 1980. And I covered Purple up to Come Taste the Band and then Rainbow up to Down to Earth. So I... I basically I took a snapshot in time of what I thought was the the key era of both bands, and I, I thought it you know it was uh, it was a different way to approach it you know so that was why I, I cut it off that way. Yeah, it, it's interesting you mentioned Down to Earth. I'm in the minority on that too. That's my favourite Rainbow record. What when Rainbow Rising exists? <laughs> How yeah. can you say that? And, and, and the, no, it is, it is and, a good album. It is it is a much better album than people give it credit for. And the Martin Birch record yeah. I, I picked was Long Live Rock and Roll for Rainbow. Oh, that, yeah, right. I didn't pick Rising. <laughs> so that's, uh, that is quite bizarre. So, I mean, Rainbow Rising is probably my uh, second favourite album of all time. 
and what, Stargate is my favourite song of all time. What's your What's yeah. your favourite album of all time then? What's number one? Number one was a bit left field. Number one is Still Life by Van der Graaff Generator. Okay, yeah, that is a bit left field. I love Van Graaff. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right, so let's let's get into the Maiden book. Um, yeah. When did you get into Iron Maiden? Were you Were you there from the very beginning? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, the um, the, the first time I heard Maiden is when I, I I got the original Metal for Mothers compilation album, which um, came out in 1979, which had uh, the early versions of uh, Sanctuary and Wrathchild on it, and I absolutely loved Wrathchild from that. Sanctuary, not so much, but uh, Wrathchild I loved. So that was the track that really got me into the band. And I was reading about them a lot in the um, music papers and that kind of thing uh, around that time when Soundhouse tapes came out and everything. Uh, it was, it was, you know, there was a lot, of, a lot of buzz about them. The first time I saw the band was actually supporting Judas Priest. That was in 1980, um, and that was the that's the only time I saw them with the Diana era. But I almost, um, I almost saw them earlier than that. This is the thing that really annoys me still to this day. Uh, there's a pub that I used to go to in Warrington where I used to watch bands on a Saturday night. And in fact, I saw White Spirit there with Yannick Gers quite a few times who were amazing. Um, but uh, Iron Maiden played there in '79. Uh, and I, w- I, w- I would have been going, but that particular Saturday night, I had tickets from, from Motorhead. I think it was in Liverpool. I thought, oh, I've got tickets for the Motorhead show. So I went to that. Looking back now, I should have been that off and seen a very early Maiden show. But you don't know what the time, do you? Yeah. Now, how did you feel when Paul Diano left the band? Uh, to be honest, um, I was pretty happy about it because I never totally warmed to his vocals. I never I never really embraced the band until Dickinson came on board. Okay. You know, I... I I really liked some of the um, early stuff, but I always felt that it could be better. You know, I could, you know, I could see why they had Diana for the, the the punky attitude in his uh, in his vocal and everything like that. But even at the beginning, there was this, the seeds of the music that could be a lot more epic, and I thought they needed another singer to do it justice, and they certainly got one. Huh. Now, 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 Steve, when, when you saw Maiden in 1980, was Dennis Stratton still in the band or was Adrian Smith out of joining? Um, I think... Oh, well, that, yeah, that's a good question. No, I still Stratton, I think. Yeah. Okay. I think still Stratton. Okay. So when did you see him with Dickinson? Don't go well, Max. I'm not absolutely sure. <laughs> what, what? I'm, I'm going to have to check those dates up now. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you see him with Dickinson for the first time? Uh, that would be... Um, I'm trying to think, it was it was a few albums later actually. Um, it was probably around Power Slave, I think. Okay, on the World Slavery Tour. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Manchester. When, when you when you talk about Maiden fans, right? You can you can basically put them in a couple of different groups, and the one group I don't want to have a point with is the people who say that. Every album Iron Maiden have done is great because it's Iron Maiden and they love every song, right? I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to talk to those people, right? Th- then you then you get absolutely. Then then you get other people that think that, and this is probably a big group of the fan base. Um, all their best stuff was done in the eighties, and everything after that pales absolutely in comparison, not. right? And then you get the people that, and these are the smaller factions that think all their best albums were done with Paul Diano. And then you get an even smaller group that are f- major fans of the Blaze Bailey era. Now, you're kind of the guy that I- I- I'm thinking you get something out of every album they've done, no matter who the singer was. And that that's kind of a little bit unusual because normally you can pigeonhole the different the Maiden fans in into those four groups that I just mentioned. Yeah, no, I definitely don't. I mean, I can, if you you know read the book, you'll I mean you'll you'll see that I I criticise a lot of stuff when I'm not when I don't think something's very good. I'll say it because I think that's the only way to do it. Um, but the even on the the best albums, I think there's stuff that's weaker, and even on the the weaker albums, there's great stuff. 
like you know, if you look, if you look at the the Blaze Bailey albums, I'm not a big fan of Blaze because his voice isn't really strong enough, I don't think. But there's great material on those two albums if you dig into them, particularly on the X Factor. And I think people who dismiss those albums because it's not Dixon on vocals are missing out on some great music. Yeah, like, and in terms of in terms of the 1980s stuff, I mean, personally, if I was to pick a favourite album. For me, it will be Brave New World. I thought that was an incredible comeback. And that's still my favourite. And the tour for that was unbelievable. So even though I love the 80s stuff, my favourite album is outside that era. Mm. So, yeah, This is why, Steve, I love talking to guys like this, because my since the band reformed, I'd probably put Brave New World as my third favourite album they've done. Um, my least favourite since they reformed is... is um, is Final Frontier. Um, I just think that a lot of the songs on that meander, they're too long. Um, and this is a complaint I hear a lot about Maiden since they reformed. You've all these long intros, the songs should be edited down, or they could be six minutes yeah. when they're nine minutes. Um, I think the Final Frontier is probably the, the most guilty of that. Um, I think I'm close to that, but I think probably the weakest for me is a matter of life and death for a similar reason. I think there's a lot of songs that are okay when you listen to them, but they don't stick with you. Yeah, that's my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. It's, it's, it's that, that's, that's the thing. It's, you know, music hits different people in different ways. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I, now, that's an album that's got a couple of incredible peaks on it for me, but it's got some stuff that really does, well, like you said, meander a bit, so... Mm. Now, you mentioned it in the book, and I know the band went out and they got a lot of flack for playing the whole record live, that matter of life and death. What did you think when, when, when they announced they were doing that, and did you go see the show? I I did go to see that show, yeah, and uh, I was sort of um, in the, the middle ground. Uh, I, there was a lot of people who said, uh, you know, oh, yeah, they shouldn't do that because we want to hear all the old classics and all that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, we want to hear the truth again and all that. But I was disappointed that they did the show that way. But the reason I was disappointed was it was uh, an, an, it was a long album. It's, a, it's an album that's about, you know, an hour and 20 minutes long or something. And it was only a two-hour show. And it left very little time for other material. To me, rather than getting a support band, they should have done a longer show. In two halves, they should have done the, the album for the first half, and their second half is some more material. And I, I didn't want to hear the Trooper and all that kind of stuff again. What I wanted to hear was uh, songs like uh, Passchendaele and Blood Brothers and stuff that, you know, hadn't been overplayed, but they completely ignored all that stuff. So I think if they were going to to make a big thing of playing the whole album like that, they should have done along the show. Mm, mm. That was my feeling on it. Well, when when you look at the way Maiden tour now, every second tour is nearly a greatest hits tour. So the tour the, the tour after that is always the one that Maiden announced as we're playing what we want. We're not giving you what you want. Mm, yeah, but I think I think to be because if that's okay, people that go to every tour, but not every fan goes to every tour. You know, sometimes you know tickets are expensive, and it might be the only fan, only show some fans go to in like five years. And you know, to say right, okay, you're going to get 80 minutes out of 120 minutes, which is all this stuff back to back with no relief in between it. Yeah, I think I think was a poor decision. Mm. To be honest. Yeah, the Book of Souls record, their last album, I think it's nearly five years old now. Um, when that came out, that got rave reviews. I think Classic Rock magazine gave it the album of the year. Um, were you fawning all over it as well when it came out the same way that a lot of the people were? No, I was I was fawning over part of it. <laughs> um, I think, to be honest, it's a bit overlong. It didn't need to be a double album like that, uh, particularly on the first half of it there's some material which yeah, I could take or leave what I will say is that there are a couple of tracks on the second disc which are among my favourite making tracks The Empire of the Clouds is incredible that's mm. an astonishing achievement and an amazing song to bookend the career you know when you go from like you know, Prowler right at the beginning you've got uh, 
and you've got to say Empire of the Clouds at the end. What a development that is. Yeah. Um, and also Tears of a Clown on that album, which is about uh, Robin Williams and his uh, suicide. That's an incredible song. Yeah. So I think there's fantastic material on that, but it perhaps could have been edited down a bit more. Mm. Now, how did you feel when the band reformed with Adrian Smith and a lot of fans, the way they look at Iron Maiden now is it's the five guys from the classic lineup and Yannick, if you know what I mean. It's like Yannick is kind of, he's in the band, but it kind of pisses off some fans that they, they want just the five guys to be in it. Did you feel that way when, when, uh, when Adrian came back? Definitely not. Definitely not. I'm a fan of Yannick. Uh, I think he's, he, if you if you listen to the stuff, and he, like in the in the book, I've gone into like who plays which solo in each song, and if you listen to some of his solo, especially as he as he bedded into the band, though, brilliant. And uh, he, he's also a, a quite a prolific songwriter in the band. If you look at the credits, he writes a lot of the material, and I think to it's, it's easy to ignore the fact of what the three guitars do because a lot of the time even when, there's, when the, there isn't a big solo going on or something the three guitars are playing different things and they're having colour to the music and I think the three guitars work well and Yannick for me uh, from the very first time I saw him White Spirit I thought he's an incredible talent and I followed him through Gillen and I was delighted when he got the uh, the gig to join Maiden and I thought that uh, the band were very honourable in not kicking him out when Adrian Smith came back, because that would have been the easy thing to do. Yeah. I thought that showed real loyalty. And I really applaud the band for doing that. And I think the three guitar line that works well. It it says a lot, I think, what you just said there about, particularly about Steve Harris, that he's incredibly stubborn at times, that he has a vision, him and Rod Smallwood for Iron Maiden. And sometimes that stubbornness can bring great things for the band, but sometimes it, it, you know, it can't. And I think a lot of people looked at, looked at when Yannick was retained and said, Steve, you're, you're being a bit too stubborn here. Now, it, they didn't know the inner workings of the band maybe and how he, how he got on with everyone in it. But a lot of the fans, I think they didn't really want Yannick to be still in the lineup. I know that is the case. I mean, I've read a lot of stuff from bands saying, what does Yannick do? But I think that's just, if you looked into it more and it delved into the music more, you'll see what he does do. And um, you, know, you may not notice it a lot of the time. I know some people don't like his stage persona as well. He's, um, he's the way he sort of dances about on stage and that. He, he throws a lot of shapes. You know, some people don't like that as a bit of a poser. But I think his playing is second to none. And like I said, his, uh, his writing contribution is excellent as well. So, no, I'll always remain... Uh, supporter of Steve's decision to keep him in the band. Mm. Some people have said to me about Yannick that he runs around so much, is he even playing? Is he even plugged in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's been that, but no, no, no truth in that whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, when you decided to do the book, this is just a general question about the book, did you go back mm. and, and listen to all the albums again? And it, did your, your, Everything, yeah. And did your reviews of any of them change because of it? Uh, yes, they did. They did, uh, without a doubt. There's uh, quite a few tracks that um, popped up on albums that I'd half forgotten about. Blimey, uh, that, that's really good. Um, things that things like, um, well, the, the Blaze Bailey albums in particular, there was a lot of great songs on there, which I, I, when I looked at the albums before I played them again, I thought, I don't remember that one, I don't remember that one. And they were really good. Um, and by the same token, there was... Um, it was some stuff from the original Bruce era. I mean, I, I, one one track that I passed me by at the time, even as a single, but I loved it going and revisiting it again. It's Holy Smoke. It's a great track. I love it. Even though that No Proof to Dying is not a great album, I actually I, I loved that uh, that track. And there was quite a few instances like that. There was one or two as well where I was remembering something as being a great track. And while it's good. It's not quite that good. Mm. So, yeah, there's like the thing. One of the ones that really, uh, oh, sorry, now just a, a, another one that uh, that really um, 
amazed me, uh, knocked me sideways when I listened again, was uh, Revelations from uh, Peace of Mind. That isn't a track that jumps to the top of most people's lists from that album, but lyrically and musically, it's unbelievable. And written solely by Dickinson, it's astonishing. Yeah, yeah, that, that's. I think. But yeah, it was a really interesting exercise doing that. I think a lot, a lot of yeah. purists when it comes to Maiden. I think, I think that Peace of Mind album has a special place for him. I think, like the popular choice is the Number of the Beast because it was the first really big album in the, in the UK. But you see a lot of Iron Maiden fans now; they'll say that Peace of Mind is their favourite. Yeah, I can understand that because it you know, has got some incredible music on it. And overall, I think it is a development from Number of the Beast. Uh, it's a more consistent album. You know, Number of the Beast has got Gangland and Invasion on it, which really, you know, does a little bit of filler. Uh, but I think Peace of Mind was a more confident album. Uh, Bruce had set up in more, and uh, obviously having Nico on, on board as well. I mean... He he made a massive difference straight away uh, with um, World Eagles Dirt. Amazing. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, I, 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 I can certainly see that. Uh, my favourite 80s album would probably be Power Slave. But I would say that uh, Peace of Mind is close behind it. Yeah. See, Steve, this is why I like talking to you, because my number one produced Mar- Martin Birch record was Power Slave. Yeah. Oh, it's an amazing album. Yeah, amazing album. I mean, I still, I, I, I still regard "Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner" as an Iron Maiden benchmark because that's a track for me that covers all the bases of what we do. It's got the uh, the really ambitious lyrical writing. The way he sums up the book is incredible. It's got the length where they stretch out and start going a bit more proggy. Now it's got fantastic uh, riffs in it. Uh, Bruce's vocal performance is brilliant on it. So I think if you want to pick all the boxes off for what makes Maiden great I think that song does it when that song towards the end of it where it, the quiet part and then it builds up again I can still yeah. lis- I can still listen to that today and that part just still gives me goosebumps the way the whole song the whole band come back in it it's, it really is an amazing piece of work exactly yeah yeah and they've gone from like sanctuary to that in like about four years <laughs> and that's just astonishing yeah, think of it like that. You know, people go on about how far the Beatles uh, advanced between '62 and '66. I mean, that's that's a similar level. Mm. It's amazing. Now, when Bruce left the band, you you probably had names that you wanted to see front Iron Maiden. Can you remember any of them? <sighs> Not really, because it, it it's hard to sort of guess that kind of thing because because you, you you don't know who's available who's going to want to leave the band he's currently in you know you know, that kind of thing I mean it's, it's it's very difficult to to really guess that and I can't remember a lot of names actually being touted around in the media there wasn't a big thing like uh, you know oh, this guy's in the mix now and this guy's in the mix as far as I remember it they pretty much got blazing and it was right we've got this guy. So there wasn't too much speculation beforehand. Mm. So I must—I was—I was quite surprised by Blaze because I, I knew about Wolfsbane, but they were—they you know, they were to me a bit of a second division sort of band. So I was amazed that they plucked him from almost obscurity. Now, the, the first time Iron Maiden played in Dublin was uh, was on the No Prayer for the Dying tour, and Wolfsbane mm. su- supported them. So. I saw, uh, yeah. So I saw Blaze play a show supporting Iron Maiden, and I liked right. I liked Wolfsbane. I never saw him as the singer for Iron Maiden, though. And I know people say that no. he has the Diano kind of voice, but one of the reasons they got rid of Diano was because Dickinson could stretch them to all these different areas that Diano couldn't. And yeah. I, I felt that bringing Blaze back in. Was was a step back with his vocal range. Yeah, well, well, I touched on this in in the book. I, I said because when um, he started getting a lot of stick on the, um, the the live appearances because he was straining a lot with um, sort of Bruce era stuff, and he, th- there were gigs cancelled because his voice was having problems, and a lot of that was to do with him having to sing out of his range. 
and he was hurting his voice. And the thing is, you can't blame him for that. You've got to put some blame at the band and say, look, you should have auditioned this guy in a bit more depth. And as he was singing, some of that stuff he'll have to sing on stage. Mm. You know, and I don't think they did that enough. And I think really he was a bit unlucky. Like he was thrust into a situation where, you know, he could make decent music with the band, but he was ill-equipped to sing some of the, the Dickinson stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I felt a bit sorry for him in that situation. But when when you look at the two big bands that changed singers then, there was Maiden was one, Judas Priest was another. And Judas mm. Priest got a singer in that was similar to Halford. And Iron Maiden didn't. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, he was uh, yeah Ripper Owens. Yeah, he was uh, he was a really good singer actually because he's with Ice Earth as well, and they're, they've done some great stuff as well. So I've got a lot of regard for him as a singer. Mm. Now, I mean, everybody wanted help him back, but I think he was good. Yeah, did, did you see Iron Maiden with Blaze live? No, I didn't. I didn't. I must admit, it was, it didn't really. You know, I, I still listen to the albums, but I've moved away from them a bit. It was really. It was, I'd, I'd lost it a little bit when um, No Prayer for the Dying came out and that was a bit weak I thought and I only really got reeled back in when Brave New World came out and Bruce and Smith came back and the tour supporting Brave New World was amazing brilliant so it's the best that's the best I've ever seen Maiden that tour yeah I, I didn't Incredible. I didn't see Maiden oh. again until um, Dance of Death when they came to Dublin and um, yeah, well, I mean, that show was amazing. They, they did a couple of the Diano pieces. They did, um, they did Sign of the Cross and the Clansman, and they were incredible with Bruce singing them. It really showed the potential for that material. Yeah, Clansman was amazing. Bruce waving a huge uh, Scottish flag, and the whole audience singing "Freedom." It was just amazing. That's the, <laughs> it that's... just shows how good some of that material was. Yeah, th- th- that's the one thing I'm, I, I will hand to Dickinson. Um, he could have come back to that band and said, I'm not singing any of the Blaze Bailey stuff. And he's done Sign of the Cross. He's done The Clansman. He's done, I saw him do Lord of the Flies. I think he's done Future yeah. Real. And he might have done one more. And like back to the Judas Priest thing again, like Rob Halford has never done any of the Ripper stuff. No, that's right. Ian Gillen won't sing any uh, David Coverdale Purple stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, c- I can kind of understand it with Gillen because he doesn't sound like Coverdale, but Halford and Ripper are pretty similar. Yeah, yeah. Tell you a story actually about that uh, the purple thing. I, in- I interviewed um, Steve Morse one time, uh, and I, one of the things I was asking him was about uh, playing that era of music, and he said, uh, "What we uh, what we used to do?" Said after I joined the band, we used to wind up Ian by starting to play Burn in sound checks. And he said he'd rise to it every time. He'd say, oh, I'm going to go with this one. We start playing Burn. And he'd storm out every time and say, I'm not singing that. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, going back to the, um, yeah, the, the, the not singing the other bit of material. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of credit does go to Bruce with that. He's still happy to sing all the early stuff. Still things I have made in every show. You know, I've mean, obviously still done Running Free and stuff like that quite a lot. So I, I don't think he's precious like that. Mm. I think he's, uh, he's very good. I, I think that shows as well how much that the band loved that material that they're still willing to play it. Like, I, I know you, you mentioned it in the book and it's been out there for years that, you know, the X Factor was a tough time personally for Steve and it's very it's a very yeah. introspective album. It's it's not really an upbeat album at all, but, you know, he still wants to go out a, a, and play that, that stuff where I think a lot of bands like Maiden, they'll just ignore a lot of the 90s stuff in, in general anyway and just go back and play the classics and then play a lot of the newer stuff that they brought out with the, with the singers that have returned. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They've always tried to do the first spread of it. I mean, if I have a little bit small criticism, it's probably that in, the, in recent years, they've relied a little bit too much back on the uh, 80s stuff and not played quite enough of the post-2000 stuff after the reunion. You know, I think there's a lot of tracks that haven't had enough uh, plays from albums like Down to Death and Brave New World. Mm. You know, 
things that got like dropped after only one tour and never came back again. You know, which is uh, a bit of a shame because there's such strong material at that time. But I suppose if you've got so many albums behind you, you can only play so much stuff, can't you? Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the Virtual Eleven record, I, I actually went back and listened to some of these as well since I got the book. And when the Virtual Eleven album came out, I, I preferred that to the X Factor. And after listening to it again recently, I'm like, I'm, I, I'm not a huge fan of both of the records. I, I can see some songs on it that, yeah, that's a good song. And then on, on, on each album, but I think Virtual Eleven... I don't think it's aged as well as the X Factor. I, I think you're you're right on the money about the Angel and the Gambler. My God, that song oh God, it, go, yeah. it goes on forever. And the keyboards in that, the keyboards in that, when that song came out, did my head in. I was like, really? Yeah. That keyboard sounding on an album for Iron Maiden in the nineties. It was so twee. It was, it was just oh, the song is. I still think that yeah. song is terrible. And how many times can you repeat that chorus? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and but the, the album has some great songs like the Klansman's one, the the last track the ballad yeah. is really good. Um, Educated fool is good. Um, the the imagery on that though as well. And you again you brought it up in the book. If you're outside the UK, you have no idea who these footballers are. Zero. Yeah, that's uh, right. And the the thing that always amazed me is that, like I said it in the book, none of them are West Ham players. Yeah, and tweeted. Yeah, and Steve Harris being the huge West Ham fan that he is. Huge West Ham fan that he is, yeah. It's yeah. So amazing. It seems like it picked him at random. Mm. One of the things I do like in the book is you talk about all the album covers and you can't talk about Maiden without mentioning the album covers. Of course, the Derek Riggs stuff is iconic. I'll be honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of their more recent covers. I think they've lost something with the because now they can all be computer generated. They've lost some of the character yeah. on it. I think you mentioned it about the Somewhere in Time album cover. Like, and I bought that when it came out. Oh, all the little angels. Yeah, you get, a mag- <laughs> you get a magnifying glass out and you're seeing all these little things and, and then you get an album cover like Dance of Death or The Final Frontier. Oh, yeah. Or The Final Frontier. I think The Final Frontier is the worst made album cover that they've done. It's pretty bad, but it's hard to get worse than Down to Death, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, I think, they're, they're, they're those two are the low points. Because mm, Brave New World is pretty good. I know it's a, it's kind of a combination of of Derek Riggs and, oh God, I can't think of the guy's yeah. name now. Um, but it's, it's a striking image, though, isn't it? With the, the face in, uh, uh, hovering above the sort of futuristic London. I, I think it's a, it's a great image. Mm. Now, a lot of people were on board with the, uh, the the imagery and all that for the Book of Souls, but you weren't really a fan of that album cover. No, not really. No, I didn't think it was... Uh, I didn't think it was uh, striking enough for an album called The Book of Souls, to be honest. It's such an evocative phrase. Uh, I really think there could have been something a lot more eye-catching and, you know, with a wow factor, if you like. Mm. Because Maiden were always one of these bands that you go into a record store in the 80s, you're flicking through the albums, next thing you get to a Maiden album, you mightn't have heard the band, you pick it up and go, oh, I'm buying this, this looks good. Yes, that's right. Um, that's what one of the reasons, well, uh, I mean, all of the things that the books that I've done, I mean, this is that's the fourth one I've done in that series. And the... Um, the one thing I always do is I always do a section on the album covers. Because to me, coming from the vinyl generation, you know, growing up in the in the seventies, the album cover is is intrinsic to an album for me. Uh, I can't think of an album without visualising its album cover in my head, and I think it's a great shame that that's being lost in the current generation. And I think it's important to keep that relationship because so much thought and. And uh, everything went into album covers back then. That I think it's just talking about the music is missing half of the package for me. Mm. But it's not only the albums. When you look at Maiden, it's the singles. Some of the singles, singles. some of yeah. the single covers are "Flight of Icarus," Two Minutes to Midnight," "Stranger in a Strange Land." Uh, just amazing mm. artwork. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, right from the from the beginning, of course, it was Riggs doing them all, and uh, you know, some of the stuff like. Uh, 
the with the uh, Maggie Thatcher on the cover of the of the uh, uniform. Yeah, uh, you know things like that were uh, were just great. Mm. I think the band started to lose me with the covers. I think No Prayer for the Dying is pretty bad. Yeah, it's not great. It's not great. Yeah, it's kind of... And, it's, uh, it's like the album. They've done the album on the cheap in Steve's barn, and I think the cover is like the album, really. It's, you know, because I, yeah. I, I, I was actually a fan of the Seven Sun album cover. I thought it was striking. It was different. It was a, a brighter color than Somewhere in Time, the one I that came it. before. It should have been a gatefold, though. Yeah, you're, yeah, you mentioned that in the in the... In the book, a few of them should have been a gatefold yeah. sleeve, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So, so Steve, I just want to talk about a couple of songs that you didn't cover in the book, and I'm just curious why. Um, you didn't. Oh, right. You didn't cover "Virus," the song that they released as a single with Blaze Bailey. Didn't I? I don't. I, be, I don't think you did. Oh, well, I mean, if if I didn't, that is an oversight because I uh, I intended to catch everyone. Yeah, that that was a standalone no, single. Well, it wasn't was an album track. Yeah, it wasn't an album yeah, track. Yeah, but I searched through all the singles and I thought I caught every one. Maybe, maybe I, I missed I'm, it. I don't I'm think missed. I did. Uh, no, you, you you're probably quite right. And uh, yeah, I, that must be. Uh, yep, I, I've got to apologise for that. That is an oversight. And the the other one is Mission for Mary, the argument with uh, Nico and um, that, was it Bruce. That is covered. Is it in it? Is it? I must. Have, I must. Have, it is. I must have skipped it. Well, that's my bad then. No, it is. <laughs> yeah, I think. I think I might have. I think what I, the reason you might have missed it is I might have not given it its own entry. But uh, in the talking about the single that was on the B side of, I think I just might have said it was uh, another track, but it wasn't a song as such. It was just you know, and then he just talked about it. Oh. So I think I might have just. Uh, appended it onto the end of another track, but it, but it's definitely there. Okay, it, it says a lot about Maiden that that they would um, publicly put an argument like that out there. That's you know supposed to be left in the four walls of a dressing room after a show. That no other band, I don't think, back then would have done something like that. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, actually, I've just found that. Yeah, it's on the end of. Um, Rainbow's Gold. It's the B side of Two Minutes to Midnight. Okay. And um, at the end of that, it says there is in fact a second B side of this single, and that talks about it. Okay. Okay. I I, I must have skipped through it then. But um, <laughs> <laughs> now I have to finish off by asking, how big a fan were you of Dickinson's solo stuff when he left Maiden? Because to me, I think he's done some of his best work overall outside of Maiden. I think, I, I think the Chemical Wedding is. One of the best albums he's ever sang on. Um, I think Skunk Works is underrated. Uh, Accident of Birth is a, is a great album. And Tyranny of Souls is yeah. also very, very good. Yeah, and uh, not to forget Balls to the Castle as well. I mean, that's got Tears of the Dragon on it, which is an amazing song. Mm, mm. So I, I would say um, that uh, Balls to the Castle, um, Chemical Wedding and Accident of Birth will be my three picks from his solo career. And I think, yeah, they're remarkable uh, albums. You know, so much stuff on there could easily fit onto a Maiden album. You know, stuff like The King in Crimson and stuff, things like that. Hmm. You know, great stuff. Yeah, I, I think... So, no, I think... Yeah, it's, it's a shame, in a way, that those songs never get played now live because, you know, it's great body work. Yeah, I know Bruce has been saying for years he wants to do another solo album, and... I hope he does, but um, he's a busy guy with all the all the other stuff he's doing. But um, nothing he can't do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think when when you look at Maiden in the nineties, Dickinson's stuff is head and shoulders above the stuff Maiden put out in general. It was, it was without a doubt. Oddly uh, enough, the only one of his that I'm I don't I'm not quite so keen on is the one that he did while he was still in the band. It's Tattoo Millionaire. Yeah, I think that that was just but a rush job though. I think that was a rush job. Yeah. It was kind yeah. of a, it was a tongue in cheek done very quickly, kind of a kind of a thing. But yeah. the, the one song you, you do talk about in in the book that came from Dickinson, and I it was their only number one in the UK, and I hate the song as well. Is "Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter"? Yeah. I I think it's dreadful. Yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> that was number one. It's it's just shameful. 
I think it was um, I think it was like uh, the Maiden fans for years, and you were you were probably a guy that watched Top of the Pops as well as me. They'd give the new yep. entries every week, and Maiden would go straight in at Run to the Hills at like seven or whatever. And no one had played, and the following week it was gone. So Top of the Pops would feel, yeah. we don't have to have Iron Maiden on Top of the Pops. And when Iron Maiden got to number one with Bring Your Daughter to Slaughter, they probably just sighed and went, okay, now we have to have Iron Maiden on because they're number one. Like, you just didn't get any airplay at all. And it, it's amazing it took them 10 years to get an act- a number one single in, in the UK. Yeah, well, the one that still amazes me didn't reach number one was Run to the Hills. Because that was such a perfect song. It was a great rock song and an incredibly catchy song. And that did get quite a bit of a play with the video and everything. And yet, for some reason, that didn't do it. I thought if they were ever going to have a number one, that would have been it. Mm, I thought, personally, I thought Two Minutes to Midnight might have got the number one. Yeah, and, another one. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and Wasted Years. Like, I think anything Adrian Smith wrote back then. He wrote the commercial songs, the four five minute songs for Maiden really yeah, well. And um and then of course Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter goes to number one and I'm like, that's one of my least favourite Iron Maiden songs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although I think I think Bruce's version is a bit better actually than Maiden's. Okay, I wouldn't I wouldn't even go back and listen to Bruce's. I'm just not a fan of the song. No. <laughs> <laughs> I actually for purposes of research. <laughs> so right right, Steve, final question. Iron Maiden catalogue, what's which album do you think is the overrated one? And which one do you think is the underrated one? The overrated one is the debut album. Okay. I think it's 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 Formative for what it is, and they were they were doing. You know, it was interesting what they were trying to do, but I don't think it's aged well. But the reason I say it's overrated is not because it's the worst, certainly isn't. But there are so many people who swear that they were never the same after Diano, and they say, "Oh, best album, the first one." And I don't know how people can say that. That's why I think it's overrated. I think Steve, it's because they still play two or three of the songs in the set pretty consistently that they might think oh, yeah. the ba- if the band love it that much that they keep playing the songs it can't be overrated mm. I think- yeah I think it's probably a better album than Killers but Killers is not overrated because that's people forget that one the one they always bang on about is the first one and that's why I think it's that is overrated mm. and what about underrated underrated um, I think to be honest I'd probably have to say Brave New World because people tend to forget it and I think it was not only was it a great album you know I think it's my favourite but also I think it was such an important album in terms of the band uh, getting Bruce back and also getting to a new level of popularity again we got a surge in popularity that's never left them that album I think it was a key album in their career and it gets overlooked a lot now so I think I'd say that Mm. My underrated Maiden album, I think, is Somewhere in Time. Um, it has an emotional attachment with me, but I think if you ask a lot of Maiden fans what are their favourite albums in the 80s, I don't think Somewhere in Time gets mentioned a lot. Um, it might be because Bruce didn't write anything on it. Um, the guitar synth, mm. I think, is another reason. But a lot of Maiden fans, will like they love Seventh Son, and then they'll rave about Power Slave, Peace of Mind, Number the Beast, and the first two somewhere in time yeah. tends to not get talked about a lot. Yeah, with regard to the your, um, overrated question, uh, it might be a bit of a contentious thing to say, but I think Seventh Son could get in that category. Because uh, while it's a good album, it's nowhere near the strongest album that we did in that with the, the classic lineup, And it's like Bruce has said since, it didn't go far enough with the concept it could have made. It was halfway to being a concept, but they weren't brave enough to make to do enough with it. And um, they should really have stretched it out and made it a bit more adventurous. And I, I think that gets an awful lot of um, very high regard now for people who love the the, the prog side of Iron Maiden. But I don't think it quite deserves it. Mm. But that would probably get me hate mail because a lot of people are thinking no, no, that album. No. But I, I think it's not quite as good as it could be. I I love Seven Son, but I I I can see where you're, where, what you're saying because 
when you look at Seven Sun as a concept album, and then you put on Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime, it's like night and day. Mm. It's like Queensryche's one is way more intricate. It's got a better storyline. It's got dialogue and everything in it. And Iron Maiden's one, is it a concept? Is it not a concept? What You're trying to read the lyrics yeah. following the story. And it's like, is there even yeah. a story here? The second side tells the story, but the first side is kind of related to it, but you've got to shoehorn the things into it. You know, I've, I've tried to do that in the book, you know, so to say, well, this is where it can relate to the concept, but some of it is a bit of a stretch. And, you know, Bruce has said that a lot. You know, they had this idea and they wanted to run with it, but they didn't quite have the balls to run with it far enough. Mm. So, Steve, what's the best concert you've ever seen Iron Maiden play? Uh, the Brave New World Tour at Manchester. Wow. wow. Amazing show. Wow. That, uh, a recent Without one. A doubt. That absolutely blew me away, that did it really did. Uh, I took my wife along to that, and it was the first time she'd seen Maiden. I said, come on, Bruce is back. You know, because, uh, I mean, we got married in the 90s when Maiden were in a, a fallow period. So when Bruce came back, I said, look, come along to this show. And she became an instant convert after seeing that show. Okay, who did, a massive fan now. who did have support in them? Can you remember back then? Was it Halford, Queensryche? Yeah, yeah, Rob Halford it was. Uh, very interesting. It was 20 years to the very year since I saw Maiden supporting Judas Priest. And then Rob Halford was supporting Iron Maiden. <laughs> <laughs> and he was on the Resurrection album, Which wasn't he? Head. He was, he was doing the resur- mm-hmm. he, Halford was doing the Resurrection album then, wasn't he? Um, it was it was shortly before he rejoined uh, Priest. Okay. What was his current album? Crucible. Um, do you know I can't remember. Okay. He was still playing stuff from like Fight and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But um, but like, he he put on a good show actually. He did a few of the old Maiden songs and well, he didn't move about as much as he used to do, but uh, he still had the voice. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, it's certainly a great doubleheader. Oh, yeah, Halford singing and then Dickinson's. And was it Queensryche opened or was it just Halford? Hmm? Was it Queensryche as well? Yeah. Was it Queensryche as well or was Queensryche. it just... Okay, so you would have had Jeff... No, T- just Halford. Or, or just Halford, okay. Because I think in the US it was Maiden, Halford and Queensryche. I think it was the three of them. That's a... Three, three band lineup, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, some good singers. Some good singers there. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly is. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 Steve, do you want to give out all the social media sites where people can get in touch with you and they can go ahead and buy the book? Yeah, well, it's um, it, it, it's already uh, um, available now on Amazon in the UK. It's already uh, shipping there. Uh, it's available on Amazon in the US, uh, but I believe it's October 28th is publication date in the US, so it's available for pre-order. Um, you can also get it from the um, the publisher's uh, official distributor, which is Burning Shed in the UK, and. Uh, if anybody wants to find me on Facebook, uh, they can get a copy direct from me, <laughs> and I'll find it. Okay. So if if you were to of do, course, uh, if you were to do, uh, that's um, sorry to shipping. Okay. <laughs> Postage costs. But, uh, if you were to do a, another book now on, on every album, every song on a band, and you could pick the band, what band would you pick? Well, funnily enough, I'm already contracted to do one. <laughs> so I can answer that question: Who it's going to be? Okay. Um, currently, I'm I'm, I'm I'm working on a book at the moment, which is a, a biography sort of thing of uh, Uriah Heep in the eighties, in the seventies. Sorry, Uriah Heep in the seventies. Uh, but when I finish that, my next one, which is going to be published in the back half of next year, is going to be uh, Led Zepp, song by song. Okay. Have you ever interviewed Lee Kerslake, who just passed away? Sadly, I haven't. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of the um, the Heat guys, and Ken Hensley has been very helpful uh, with my, the book that I'm working on, and uh, I've spoken to Mick Box a lot, and I knew Trevor Gold, but Lee, I've ne- I never actually met, and I was deeply saddened about him dying. Mm. Mm. Well, Steve, I got I did it. write an obituary about him. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah, I, the, the, uh, the website that I... Uh, Court Minister, which is called Velvet Thunder. That's velvetthunder.co.uk. Uh, if anybody goes on to there, they can uh, they can find my uh, obituary about Lee. 
Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of fans, you know, they they only know Lee for the the first two Aussie albums in general. You know, they might say, yeah, he's in he's from Aussie's band, but he has a lot more albums out than those two. He, like he's a your history with Heap that goes back to what the early seventies. Well, yeah, well, including uh, live albums. You know how many albums he's done with Heap? Twenty nine. Wow! <laughs> oh my God. 29, 17 studio albums and 12 live albums. Wow, that is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, so he's a he's a big loss. And what I always say to people, you know, even before this COVID thing, hey, if these bands come around to your area, go and see them because you never know when you're going to get to see yeah. all these guys play again. Well, Lee, of course, had to retire from the band in 2007 from ill health then, because even back then he wasn't well. Uh, but the thing that uh, I would say about that Lee, he's, uh, as, a, as a person, he's an example to us all, because he bore no rancor at the end towards Aussie Lee. The, the, the terrible business with uh, not getting the credit on those albums and getting the parts replaced and everything and yet at the end when he reached out to Ozzy for the platinum albums that he'd never had and Ozzy sent them to him uh, he said that was it he didn't care about the money it was all settled and he even went onto Facebook that's just earlier uh, I think it was just earlier this year uh, to tell people leave off Sharon because Ozzy's got his own problems she's got enough on her plate and that takes a big man to do that for what they did to him yeah, yeah, he's a he's a big loss. He's, he's been on some big, big albums for a lot of people. He certainly has. Yeah, very underrated drummer. And um, together with Gary Fain and Uriah Heap, one of the best rhythm sections I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. I'll be honest with you, Steve. I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not a massive Heap fan. I know people who are, and they they're devastated over this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh no, I, I've always loved Heap. Great band. Hmm. So, right, I promise this is my final question. If anyone now wanted to listen to a Heap album with Lee Kerslake on, what one would you pick first? Sweet Freedom. Okay. I'll have That's to... my personal Heap favourite. All right, I'll have to look Most that up myself. Say Demons and Wizards. Yeah. Most people say Demons and Wizards because that's the biggest one, and that's definitely second for me. But Sweet Freedom is the one that I've always loved. Okay. All right, Steve, well, I'm going to leave you go. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Absolute pleasure, yeah. All right, Steve, I'll leave you go. Have a good rest of the day. Absolutely, mate. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks for your interest. No problem. Take care. Cheers. Bye. There you go. Our chat with author Steve Pilkington all about his brand new one, Iron Maiden, every album, every track. And as I mentioned before, it's all part of the On Track series put out by Sonic Bond Publishing over in the UK. So I would urge you guys to go out and grab your own copies of that. I guess at this point, pre-order. But uh, yeah, definitely get that in. You know, while you're at it, if you're really into that vein and you want another look at it as well, because you can never have too much Maiden, then we would uh, highly recommend also Martin Popoff's book, Iron Maiden, Album by album. And since we're also talking about never having too much Maiden stuff, also should mention that uh, Maiden just recently announced a brand new live album, Iron Maiden, Legacy of the Beast, live in Mexico City. So a uh, pretty cool set list for all this. Plenty of bundles available with uh, vinyl there's even some special limited edition tricolor vinyl editions available. So definitely go check that out. And I believe the uh, release date for that is going to be November 20th. And yeah, I bought the vinyl and the CD. And while we have a few minutes, why don't I just also remind you about the uh, brand new film out by uh, our longtime friend Bob Nelbandian, part of his Inside Metal series. And it came out in, uh, for streaming and for purchase on DVD back on October 6th. Again, as I just mentioned, part of the Inside Metal series. And this one is called Bay Area Godfathers. So I've been waiting for this one to come out for a little bit. And it is the whole Bay Area metal scene and the whole history of that. You can go up to YouTube and uh, there should be a trailer up there for you to check out as well. But all oh, just kinds of great stuff in there. And obviously the usual suspects, Metallica, Megadeth, Exodus, cannot leave out Y&T. 
Testament. I mean, come on. It's a laundry list of classic metal bands that come out of the Bay Area. And uh, I think a lot of people, especially thrash fans, will consider that this is one that is a long time coming to the Inside Metal series. And it also goes back to what we talked to Bob about years ago when the first Inside Metal one came out of being able to now go to different scenes and start to expand that whole thing from beyond the uh, the initial trilogy of L.A. out to all the other ones. And of course, the most appropriate next scene for Bob to tackle is the Bay Area. So definitely either order that on a stream and enjoy it or like me, get your own copy and you usually get that from any of the places that you can order from, but you can also go right up to MetalRockFilms.com and get this one as well as any of the other ones that are in their catalog. So with all of that being said, that will do it for yet another week of Focus on Metal. That's right. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So once again, thanks for listening. And as we always say week after week, Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.